from some of us. There's elation. Uh, there's exhaustion. How did we actually manage to get here this morning? And so I wonder how you felt as I read this psalm. We'd never verbalize it, of course. But I wouldn't be surprised if in reading this psalm, I added confusion into the mix. Confusion. This psalm, Psalm 110, it's a psalm that can leave us feeling really perplexed. And that's because different people are speaking, uh, different lords are mentioned. Uh, there's things spoken about in this psalm that you and I this morning we might find a bit unsettling. And then all of a sudden, Melchizedek makes an appearance. And it's confusing. And yet, did you know this morning that uh, the psalm most often quoted in the New Testament is not Psalm 100, it's not Psalm 46, it's not even Psalm 23, it's this psalm. This psalm. And it's been said that while uh, you and I today, we, we think of it as a puzzle, well, the, the first Christians viewed it as a treasure, a treasure. Now, I know if I brought the kids back in here and I, you know, got them one by one to say, what's the difference between a, a puzzle and a treasure? Well, they'd know the difference, wouldn't they? And I hope we'll know the difference uh, this morning. There's a journey I want us to go on as we look at this psalm. I want to persuade you that this passage is a passage, it's a psalm to really treasure. Now, um, C.H. Spurgeon, he said that every word in this psalm has got an infinity of meanings, which is the kind of thing that uh, C.H. Spurgeon used to say. Uh, and I think in many ways he's absolutely right. But this morning I want to just throw, show you three things. Three things. This psalm, it shows us, firstly, verses 1 to 3, it shows us this. There's someone in charge. There's someone in charge. Now I said this passage, it was picked up a lot in the New Testament. It's quoted in the, the first sermon of the New Testament era at Pentecost. But it's also, of course, it's mentioned by Jesus himself. And maybe you know in Matthew chapter 22, he's been questioned by the religious establishment. They're trying to question his authority. They're trying to trap him. They ask him about taxes to Caesar. They speak to him about marriage at the resurrection. They ask him about the greatest commandment. But the final response, the thing that stops all the questions in Matthew 22, is when Jesus starts talking about these verses. So what's it all about? What's this passage, this psalm all about? Well, notice first, who's talking? If you look down at the passage, maybe you can see the, the small difference uh, between the two words, Lord. It might seem like a, a little detail, but it's really important. The first is all in capitals, and that's a reference to Yahweh. And the second is the way you and I would normally type the word Lord, isn't it? And so that's speaking about somebody else. Uh, so this is a psalm of David. And David was Israel's greatest king. And yet David refers to someone as his Lord, my Lord. Now that's not the way that uh, kings usually speak, is it? Now we wouldn't um, expect King Charles to address anyone else really as Lord, would we? 
David seems to know there is someone who is the Lord of the Kings. There is someone who has greater status than he does. And what the earliest Christians saw here was a pointer to the Trinity. Because when Peter quotes these words at Pentecost, he says, he speaks of Jesus' exaltation to heaven, and then he says this, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Messiah. And the amazing truth this morning is that when we read this verse or think about it, what we're doing is we're listening in on a conversation between different members of the Trinity. God the Father is speaking to God the Son, and Jesus tells us when this verse is mentioned in Mark chapter 12, that David spoke these words in the Holy Spirit. In our passage, the Father is addressing his Son, and he's speaking to him of his exalted status. And so this morning, verse 1, what it does is it takes us behind the scenes of the universe. Listen to the verse again. God the Father says to God the Son, sit at my right hand. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And these words this morning, they tell us that there's somebody in charge. That's what we often want, isn't it? We look at the state of our world. We look at our country. We maybe look at our own workplace, and we often think, don't we, where are all the leaders? Who's actually in charge? But in verse 1, someone has been exalted. Someone is in the position of um, honor. Someone is ruling. And that someone is the Messiah. That someone is the Lord Jesus. See, look at his posture. He's sitting. Sitting. Now, that speaks of calmness, it speaks of composure, it speaks of a, a great work being finished. And look where he's sitting. He's at the Father's right hand. He's in the place of authority. And this makes us, as Hebrews 1 tells us, this makes Jesus superior to the angels. This is a total reversal, isn't it, from what we see on Good Friday. The one who was once humiliated, the, the same Jesus who's lifted up onto a cross. This passage tells us has been lifted up to God's throne. He will sit there. He is sitting there now until the day all his enemies, all evil, all sin, all of that has been destroyed. And so this morning... Friends, Jesus, you need to know this morning, Jesus is not anxious. Jesus is not looking at this world and thinking, what on earth is going on? No, even now, Jesus rules all things as the risen, as the ascended, as the reigning king. And one day soon, his enemies will be under his feet. I mentioned Spurgeon a minute ago. Listen to how he puts it. He says this, those rebels who now stand high in power, they shall soon be in the place of contempt. They shall be his footstool. He shall with ease rule them. Not rising to tread them down, 
but retaining the attitude of rest. See this morning, can you see how practical Trinitarian theology is? You and I, we look at a world that's a mess, we look at our lives with all their uncertainty, and we so easily forget, don't we, we, there's a King of Kings and there is a Lord of Lords. You and I, we think the, the Christian church, especially in our country today, it's struggling so much, isn't it? And yet we forget that the number of Jesus' subjects, the number of his followers is growing every single day. That's actually the picture that we see in verses 2 and 3. If you look at those verses, the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. See, as God's gospel, as it goes out from Zion, from the church, it's like a kind of mighty scepter. And God comes and God rules in the midst of his enemies. And though many people hate him, though many people hate him for that, well, this passage says that many other people join him. So you look at verse 3, your people will offer themselves freely. The language is uh, poetic in verse 3, but the picture being painted is, is of lots of people enlisting, lots of people joining, lots of people coming to this king. They offer themselves freely. They come on the, on the day of your power in holy garments. They come clothed in righteousness. And they're a great multitude. They're, they're as plentiful as the Jew. And this morning, if you're a Christian, you belong to that number. This morning, if you're a Christian, that's, that's the privilege Jesus has given you. That's the high calling you have as his subject, as his follower. This psalm, it teaches us someone is in charge and we belong to him. We belong to him. Someone is in charge. There's a second thing we see here in verse 4. We also see this. We see there's someone in heaven. Someone in heaven. Now, as I say that, as I say someone in heaven, maybe you're thinking, well, okay, I get that there's a king in heaven. And I can kind of see how you're making that point from verses 1 to 3, but I I don't really see that in verse 4. What do you mean by that? What kind of person is in heaven? Well, let me try and show you. If you look at the verse, notice, notice the speech marks. The second time in just a, a few verses, David tells us something that the Lord has said to his Lord. And this time he doesn't address his son in kingly language, does he? No, the picture, it's, it's changing. You are a priest forever. Now we'll come to Melchizedek, or Mel, as I think I might need to call him, uh, in a moment. But what's really clear here is this. This great king, he's not just the king, is he? 
This great king, God says, is also a priest. And uh, this morning, that is a big surprise. Uh, If you've read uh, much of the Old Testament, you'll know that, that nobody was to have both of these roles. And any time a king in the Old Testament tried to kind of act in a priestly way, tried to, to take to himself religious authority as well as, as well as political authority, well, that made God really angry. And yet there was one exception to this rule, one exception, and his name was Melchizedek. Now, uh, if you've been reading the Bible for a little while, you'll, you'll, you'll know maybe a little bit about Melchizedek, and he's a kind of enigmatic, uh, mysterious figure, and his only appearance in the Old Testament, apart from uh, this psalm, it comes in Genesis 14. Don't, don't turn there just now. Look at it uh, later if you want to. But in Genesis 14, he, he's described as a king of a place called Salem. And yet the text also says that Melchizedek was a priest, a priest of God Most High. In Genesis 14, he he blesses Abram, and Abram gives him a tenth of all he has, and and then Melchizedek just kind of disappears. Now, uh, Judy Dench has won Oscar. And Judy Dench, she won it for a film that I've not seen. And yet I remember when she won this Oscar, there was a lot of fuss because in this particular film, she was only on screen for eight minutes. And I think this morning, Melchizedek, he's a bit similar. He gets one mention in the Old Testament, and then he's mentioned here. And yet if you read the book of Hebrews... Well, the writer of Hebrews thinks that Melchizedek is a really big deal. In chapter 5 of Hebrews, he says that Jesus is a priest just like Melchizedek. And then in chapter 7 of Hebrews, which you can read later, he, he devotes a whole chapter to expand on this point, really to talk about verse 4. He says that Melchizedek had no father or mother, no genealogy, no beginning or end. That made him different from the priests who'd come after him. He wasn't from the tribe of Levi. Um, He was even greater than Abram. And then the writer of Hebrews, he comes to the crunch. He says that Melchizedek's his fleeting presence in Scripture. He says it points to something. He says it's there to kind of show that the whole Levitical priesthood was unable completely unable to deal once and for all with the sins of God's people, that we needed a better hope, that we needed someone like Melchizedek to come, that we needed somebody different, that we needed someone who had what he calls an indestructible life, someone with a permanent priesthood. And the writer of Hebrews tells us there is someone like that, that someone is Jesus, See, I think if verses 1 to 3, if they answer the question, is someone in charge? Well, verse 4, it helps us answer a very different question. 
Can somebody make me clean? Can somebody make me clean? I think that's a longing that lots of us have this morning, isn't it? Many, many people today, they, they look for, for purity, don't they? Uh, they show that they're pure in the eyes of others by, the, by supporting the right causes. Uh, being on the right side of history. But I think there's another way that we, we see this, this kind of longing for purity. This might be a little bit controversial. I think my generation, I think my generation are far more concerned about diet, far more concerned about fitness than probably they should be. Now, these things, don't get me wrong, these things can be good, can't they? Christmas is coming. And uh, January, lots of people will kind of, I don't know, go on diets and that kind of thing. But that kind of thing, it can, it can become an obsession, can't it? It can become about purity, the detox, pure gym, which I used to be a member of. So, you know, okay. Innocent smoothies. And to have the perfect figure, to, to look a certain way. You know, all the striving, all the denying, all the self-flagellation. Sometimes the reason someone does that, sometimes the reason someone wants to make their outsides look good is because they know their inside is very messed up. And this morning, all of us here today, we all know, don't we, what it's like to feel haunted by things we've done, things we've said, maybe even things we've thought. We're, we're like Lady Macbeth, aren't we? Out damn spot. And we wake up in the middle of the night and we cringe at things we've said or things we've done. And there may be things that we've repented of. There may be things that God has forgiven us for that we cannot get past this morning. And what do we need? Who do we need? We need a priest. We need someone to stand in between, someone to stand in our place before a holy God. We need a blood sacrifice. We need someone to atone for our sins. That is what we have. See, Hebrews 9 tells us that Jesus has entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, that he's appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And yet it's even more than that. It's not just that Jesus has done something for us in the past. Now, if you're a Christian this morning, you, you need to know that Jesus is doing something for you even now, right now. Jesus is interceding for you, for me. Listen to, to Romans chapter 8. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. 
I think we all know it's such a wonderful thing, isn't it? To, to know we're going through a difficult time and we know a friend is praying for us. Maybe we're struggling to pray. And to know that someone else is praying for us, it can mean the world to us, can't it? But someone else is praying too. And so this morning, listen to Robert Murray McShane. He says this, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. And maybe this morning you, you think that all, oh, that just sounds too good to be true. That sounds kind of too good for me. Well, look at our verse again. And I think there's two little words in verse four that I think can help us. Look at the word forever. And then look at the word sworn. This morning, God wants us to know that this is real. God wants us to know this is certain. He wants us to know there's someone in heaven, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. This morning, God wants you to know if you're a Christian that your name is graven on his hands, that your name is hidden, is written on his heart, that nobody will ever be able to tell you to leave his presence. But I think there's even more to treasure here. There's someone in charge. There's someone in heaven. And yet verses five to seven, they tell us, here's the third thing this morning, there's someone invincible. Someone invincible. Psalm 110, I said at the start, it's a treasure. I think this final section, verses five to seven, it's probably the most uh, difficult, the most puzzling in a way, isn't it? And in these verses, the imagery, it changes again. Uh, what have we had? We've had a king, we've had a priest. Now we've got verses five to seven, we've got a warrior. A warrior. And not just any warrior. Look at the words David uses to describe him. He's going to come and he's going to shatter kings. That's in verse five. He's going to shatter chiefs. A similar idea in verse six. When this figure appears, nobody, nobody will be able to stand against him. He's going to have global authority. He's going to execute judgments among the nations. He's going to have rule and reign over the wide earth. Now, during the Cold War, there were two superpowers, weren't they? America and the USSR. Well, this is greater than that, isn't it? There's no contest. And what's described in verses uh, five and six is, is greater than any victories David would have had or could have hoped for. And the point being made here is that when this person comes, when this warrior appears, no one will be able to stop him. And what these verses are pointing to ultimately, they're pointing to the return of Christ. 
One day, God will act through his anointed priest king, and when he does, justice will be done. See, Psalm 2, it speaks of the same thing, doesn't it? It speaks of God's anointed. Ultimately, that is Jesus. The Psalm says, Psalm 2, when Jesus comes again, the nations will be his inheritance. When Jesus comes, he will break them with a rod of iron. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. But how does Psalm 2 end? It it ends like this. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Kiss the son, or he will be angry. Now, we need to remember uh, this is a a psalm. This is a a poem. The language is poetic. And yet it's the psalmist's way of describing something that is real, something that is real almost too dramatic for us to take in. And if you read Revelation 19 later, well, the language used in that chapter to to describe Jesus' return, it's even more hard-hitting than this. Because when Jesus comes again, he will save his bride, and yet he will also bring God's justice. And this is so important for us to remember this morning. We need to remember the real Jesus this morning. Calvin says he is gentle with his flock, but fierce and formidable with wolves and thieves. And this morning we need a king. This morning we need somebody who can make us clean. But we also need someone who will destroy evil. Uh, Miroslav Volf, he's a a Croatian theologian, and he he lived through the civil war in the former Yugoslavia. And in his book, Exclusion and Embrace, uh, he argues that the only way a person can really be committed to to ideas of of non-violence, we love that idea, don't we, in our world today, non-violence. The only way a person can be committed to that is if they believe in a God of justice and vengeance. And he knows that many Western people hear that that kind of idea and they think, well, you know, that can't really be right. But then he asks his his readers to conduct a kind of thought experiment. He He says, imagine denying the idea of ultimate justice to people whose cities have been plundered whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. And then he says this, if God were not angry at injustice, if God were not angry at deception, and God did not make a final end of violence, then that God would not be worthy of our worship. And so, friends, this passage is here this morning to make us bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. If the Jesus you worship would never get angry, he's not the real Jesus. He's just an idol. See, what does Paul say? God has set a day 
when he will judge this world by the man he has appointed. And that day is coming. History has a momentum. History is going somewhere. And I think we see this this sense of momentum, even in the last verse, look at the last verse, verse 7, the pictures of someone, he will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. The pictures of, of someone drinking, stopping, stopping momentarily, stopping for re- refreshment before marching on, marching on to deliver justice. And friends, I hope you feel that the comfort of that this morning, the one who will come, the one who will bring justice to this world, well, he is, as we'll remember in a few moments, he is the same person who was judged for us. See, it's Advent next Sunday. Everyone's going to be getting really excited, aren't they? Here's, here's an Advent verse. One week in advance, 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy. Destroy something. Why did Jesus come? The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the work of the devil. I wonder this morning, do you ever think of the Lord Jesus like that? He is a destroyer. He is the one who will destroy. One day he will return and sin and shame and sorrow and the serpent and all evil will be no more. And friends, when that day comes, we will sing. We will sing hallelujah. We will sing, sheltering next to, looking up in awe at the most powerful person in the universe. And he will be our king. He will be our priest. He will be our warrior. He will be our treasure. Well, let's pray together.